We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We saw a thing and talked about it. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. We're going to talk about it. Oh, buddy, are we going to talk about it. So what movie do you want to talk about first? We have The Fly, but we also have The Fly. I feel like we should talk about The Fly first. I love it. And then move on to The Fly, you know? Well, okay. How did you feel about both of these films? I enjoyed both of them, but I enjoyed both of them for different reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. The original felt like a comedy to me. I don't know if that's appropriate. (laughs) Um, It is like B-schlock movie. Like, it is so schlocky. When the reveal of him in his fly head and he can't talk because they didn't have the uh, the ability to make a mouth move, I guess, in the fly at that point. It's pretty ridiculous. It's super ridiculous, but I thought that was part of its charm. Like, the the whole thing was outrageous. Like, even the whole conceit of the movie where they're not sure to believe her or not, that's the easiest thing in the world to double check. Like, you take the smushed head out of the smushing machine, and if it's not shaped like a human head, then you're fine. <laughs> yeah, why, why couldn't they see that this was not a normal person's size head? And his whole arm, too, right? Yeah. This would be the easiest thing in the world to prove, and they're like, modern. No, it sounds pretty far-fetched to me. You had to remove the body from the machine. You surely would have seen the giant fly head and giant fly arm, and then this becomes a non-issue. No, no, they wouldn't have done that. No. They, they could not have done that. No. That would have been impossible. Because we have to go on not believing Helene for however long. And as we all know, they didn't have the technology to raise that platform meant for smushing once it had been lowered. It could only be lowered twice, and then forever, they just have to buy a new machine. That's what we know from history from the 50s. We also know not to trust French Canadians. We also know that uh, women probably can't be trusted about flyheads either. Or trusted to raise their own child. Absolutely. Oh, God forbid they raise their own child. She was doing a little child rearing instead of going to fetch her man some rum and milk. I really think it's her fault. I think the whole thing was her fault. But I think it really comes down to uh, don't trust anyone from Montreal. If it doesn't come through that we're being sarcastic right now, I'm just going to have to chop all of this directly out of the episode. <laughs> There's no way it doesn't. You know, you know. But I do like the fact this has got to be a Canadian picture. Which I kind of dug because then Cronenberg did the remake and he's a Canadian director. And I, I dug that about it sort of staying Canadian in a sense. I'm going to gush for a little bit. It, it sounds like you got mixed feelings. The 1986 film The Fly is a gosh darn miracle. I love everything about this movie. I think it is so epic in scope. It's terrifying, but also like such a crazy story uh, that has to do with a budding relationship and abuse and abortion and all these women rights issues. How is this film in 1986? It's like a film about trauma. It did feel very progressive for the time. I certainly felt like there was some like weird 80s misogyny that we've run into from time to time on this podcast that like seems to be hard to get away from in 80s pictures. So like I feel like we should just sort of skate by that because it just is what it is. Well, at this point, he is he's turning into an insect. Absolutely. Yeah, a little bit of machismo, but also he's like learning the politics of insects. And, and when he tells her, you can't be here because I'll hurt you, 
That is such a a self-aware, scary thing to hear in the movie that I'm like, run, Gina Davis, run. Yeah, the the misogyny for me was more about like the redemption arc for her abusive ex-boyfriend. I didn't love that. Oh, that jackass. Yeah, no, good call. Yeah, so for me, I just, I didn't enjoy that he got a redemption arc because he was such a raging asshole. I was just waiting for Brundle Fly to eat him. Yeah, I was waiting for him to die, and then that <laughs> would have been acceptable to me as far as a redemption arc. <laughs> Absolutely. But he's not a very big part of the movie. He's really just there to give Gina Davis somebody else to talk to and to show that she's got a bit of a backbone and can stand on her own two feet, which I, I dug about that as far as expanding on her character. And also making it her boss. Yeah. So she can't really escape this son of a bitch. Yeah. He's writing the article or he's publishing the article that she has been working so hard on so the only thing she can do is tell him off every time they're together and remind him that he's an asshole but he she also sort of needs him and it gave us some doubt just like it it gave jeff goldblum some doubt about the sincerity of her affections towards him i think that that added to kind of the anger that came with him turning into the fly, which I appreciated about the character development of the storyline. I thought that that was, I thought the characters were really strong. I genuinely had feelings about all of them and it wasn't always a feeling of love or hate. Sometimes it was very mixed in black and it wasn't, it definitely wasn't black and white. It was very, very shades of gray through the whole thing. And I, and I definitely feel, I don't know, way more sympathy, I guess. For Jeff Goldblum's The Fly, then the 1956 husband, you you just shouldn't have done that, man. Like, And he had really no reason to because he promised his wife, I wouldn't and I would wait to make sure that like this animal is okay first. And then he just did it. Whereas at least Jeff Goldblum, like he was drunk. He was at a, in a place of like, is my girlfriend really in love with me? Or am I being played for this story? I'm a little nervous. And then he's like, screw it. I'm going to do it. It made more sense. A hundred percent it made more sense. But it also, it felt to me like if the original 50s The Fly is a Bugs Bunny cartoon, then the 80s The Fly is like a Pixar cartoon. Like it just, they're both cartoony, but one of them has way more heart than the and the other is really meant to be about more like slapsticky B level stuff. And they both have their place for that. So I feel like I can appreciate both of these movies in completely different ways because they're so different from each other. Yeah, I enjoyed The Fly uh, from 1950, sorry, 1958, not 1956. There was never a point in that film where I wasn't engaged. I felt like the story was moving the right way. The pacing's actually like pretty great for a film from the 50s. And uh, and I I genuinely was interested to see how they were going to land at a place where she murders her husband, who is now half fly. The elevation of this body horror Cronenberg film from 86. Yeah. To me, there's just so much more there. The, the How about the decision not to like use music? And then when the music comes in, it's like so impactful in the 1986 version of The Fly. But that's not to say that, there, that the, the remake is boring at all. And then we get like the actual transformation of The Fly from Jeff Goldblum, which is terrifying. And it's 
shockingly amazing special effects, but also we still sort of see him being human underneath it, even though he's fascinated with what's happening to him. It's I had a weird feeling when I finished watching the Cronenberg version because I was surprised at how much I liked it, but I was also really not enjoying how gratuitously disgusting it was. I had told you. I know, I know. You told me, you warned me. I was not eating when I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you were completely right. And there were a couple moments where I had to pause it and just be like, okay, I need a second. Like, take a deep breath and keep going. (laughs) And, And that's fine, right? Like, I know that that kind of stuff just isn't really for me. And that disappointed me about this film because just like the 80s version of Little Shop, which I've gone back to and watched a couple times since we did it for the podcast because I truly fell in love with that movie. I feel like if The Fly, if Cronenberg's The Fly was a little bit less gross, I would feel similarly about it and I would go back to it. But it's I, because it's so disgusting, I don't think it's a movie I'll revisit. And that really disappoints me because I did genuinely love a lot of it. I see I can take this stuff. I can I can watch his face come off and then like an insect crawl out and be like, it's not that I'm not phased. I am. I'm I'm also like, wow, look at all this like falling off. This is gross. This is like so super gross. <laughs> yeah. But also like when you compare these two films, the ending for Helene in the 50s version, she's so happy that this like thing is dead. Juxtaposed against Gina Davis in the 80s version, who is in mourning. And, and now she's got to decide if she's going to keep the whatever is growing in her. She has literally, like, blown apart the man she loved. She knew that, like, at this point, it's more insect than man. He's trying to, like, fuse their family into one be. Oh, my God. Like, even the idea of what Brundlefly at that moment is trying to accomplish is sick and twisted in your brain. But she's not left happy that it, she did it. She cries out. And and I just think it's such a powerful ending. Well, I don't want to say I hope she, I don't know. Like, I hope she doesn't have a larva growing inside her. I never <laughs> saw the sequel. But I really hope that's not what happened. I looked it up because that made me so curious because I was, I was like frantically writing in my notes, I'm sorry, if this movie ends with a tiny like hybrid fly baby, like I think I'm all about that. That could be really interesting. It reminded me of um, the Zack Snyder zombie movie we did uh, like last year. Uh, was that Dawn of the Dead? Dawn of the Dead. Where they get, where that woman gives birth to a zombie baby? Yes. And it kind of reminded me of that moment because I'm like, well, if you're, I mean, if you're going to go gross, you might as well just like push through and go all the way. Uh, so I looked up what the sequel was because I was a little, weirdly, I was a little disappointed we didn't get a weird fly hybrid baby in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> And the sequel is about their adult grown child. It sounded awful to me. It sounded like they didn't do like anything interesting with it. That's potentially an, a really interesting character study to have this child that's born. Like, what does that look like? And what does that child have to deal with as far as challenges? And yeah, I don't know. I think it raises a lot of like really interesting philosophical questions and could have been very interesting for a sequel. But I'm never going to watch it because <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's just leave this as it is. It's not Cronenberg. No. So I don't know if it's, 
I don't know what it's like. Maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I'll give it a try. Because I just, I really enjoyed this rewatch of The Fly from the 80s so much. To your point, it it felt very progressive. It did, yeah. It also felt weirdly, up until the point where he actually starts turning into the fly in like a really grotesque way that changes his appearance, I had a thought that this would have been a really good basis for a Joker origin story because he turns into this like absolute crazy megalomaniac who's so convinced of his superiority and he just starts like causing chaos around him because of that. I thought, how do you change this story so that it does become a Joker origin story? And I'm not entirely sure how you do it unless it's like one of those situations where every time he goes through the teleporter, he's just losing part of his humanity. So he's not being like combined with anything else but it is making him less human and like sterilizing emotion out of him or something um, and making him more of like a digital copy of himself, which I thought could have been kind of interesting as a character study for the Joker, right? So it was very weird. You know those moments where he's like walking around, he's all confident? I do. It reminded me a little bit of Spider-Man 3. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it was like way better. And how cool would that have been if it if it existed inside of that DC universe? I thought that would have been really interesting. And it got me excited at the idea of Jeff Goldblum playing the Joker at some point, which I know will never happen, but based on this characterization, I could kind of picture it. Like, I genuinely don't know how your brain went there. Like, I, I, I'm... I, <laughs> I, like, I don't understand you watching this movie going, you know what would have been great? Okay. Okay. Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> this movie about a man turning into a fly, but he doesn't turn into the fly. He turns in to the Joker. Go. Like, Sometimes you come out with these things where you're like, you know what? This would have been really great as this Marvel movie or something. And I'm like, what? It has nothing to do with you. No, of course it doesn't. No, no, it has absolutely nothing to do with each other. I am fully aware that my brain does not work in a normal fashion. Your brain works in a, in a, in a very strange place, Chris, where you're like, here's the thing. Why I didn't like this movie is because I thought the movie was going to be all of this. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't like the movie because it wasn't what you wanted. You expect your expectations like were way over here on like some desert island and they didn't go there. It's like, nah, but they should have. And it's like, (laughs) but that's not what the movie did. (laughs) No, no, for sure. And in this particular, I totally understand that that's a thing I do and that it makes no sense. All the time. Absolutely. I understand that I'm ridiculous. That's fine. And I'm not saying this to detract from anything of what the fly is, because I think it's wonderful for what it is. But I just had that quick moment where I'm like, yeah, if he turned into the Joker in this moment, I'd be like, yeah, that checks out. And and obviously didn't. And that's not what this movie is. But, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm watching it, and I'm all... I'm always trying to think about, you know, wouldn't it be more interesting if this was the storyline for the Joker movie we did get? Because that movie was utter trash, and this movie wasn't utter trash. Hey, I'm all for the other one being utter trash. I I just, like, if there were teleporters involved and he turned into the Joker based on going back and forth, hey, would it have been a better movie? Probably. (laughs) It probably would have been a better movie. But I'm just... Like, I've had a couple conversations with people lately who are like, but you know what? You know what the problem with this movie is? And I'm like, what's that? It's like, I really like this actor who played this, but wouldn't it have been better if this actor was? And I'm like, you literally were thinking about that instead of watching the actor that was actually, I say, yep, yep. And I'm like, 
I don't understand how you're watching that movie in your head play out while there's another movie going on. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I'm not going to change, just FYI. We, we enjoyed these movies, though. Yes, 100%. Yes. I definitely would recommend The Fly. The Fly is probably, like, the highest I'm going to rate a movie. Like, I, I think it's next to Stand By Me and Terminator 2, like, my number three out of all the movies we've watched. How dare you, Terminator 2? <laughs> How dare you, sir? How dare you? I kind of agree with you, because like for movies that we've watched for the podcast, that's easily one of my favorites. It's up there with, you know, Emma and Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, how interesting that, that that's like become the list, right, for the podcast and how varied those movies are from each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I have to ask, because this has horror elements in it, though, Chris, were you afraid at any point watching this film? No. Is that just going to be a running theme now? <laughs> uh, it should be, because your thing is, I don't want to be afraid. It sounds like... You don't want to be afraid, but nothing we've watched has made you afraid. But we've also not done anything really supernatural, and that's always the stuff that gets me. It's the ghosts and the like, demons and stuff. It's coming. It's coming, Chris. This is this is this is a a a, a rise. Like we're just preparing you I for that moment where we do like the Conjuring franchise. You're helping me build emotional calluses for the eventual horror movies that are to come. I understand. I understand. I, I mean, we do have the Conjuring franchise coming out with a third this year. Good Lord. So maybe that will have to be <sighs> done one time. You challenge me in interesting ways, my friend. Now understand, we are never going to watch a movie that is as gory ever again as The Fly. Thank God for that. This is the grossest film I think we will ever watch. Yeah, I mean, it's right up there with The Thing, because that was pretty gross. This is, I think this is gross. Like, the the way Brundlefly has to eat, and he, like, has the acid that spills out of his face. It's gross. And then he's losing his skin. I think this is grosser. Do you know... I realized that the thing that I find grossest is when they lose their fingernails. I don't know what it is about that specifically that makes me so skeeved out. But when he was like picking at his fingernails, like that was more gross to me than when his ear fell off and his teeth were falling out. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that specifically. I agree. For me, there's a, there's a film called Stir of Echoes. And I saw it in theaters and it's a, it's a pretty creepy ghost story. And at one point, there is a nail that gets like slammed onto the ground and the nail goes backwards. I've seen needles go into eyeballs. I've seen all kinds of stuff. That is the most painful thing I think I've seen to me while watching it is the nail going backwards. Yeah, that's, that's no, that's no bueno, my friend. <laughs> no bueno to that. But, but hey, we're not watching that movie. And I, I genuinely think this is probably going to be the grossest one we ever see because I'm I'm trying to think of other films that even might play to there, and I don't think we have any left. So unless it's a new film that comes out in a franchise that we don't even know what horrors a lot like lie in our way. But we've also talked about how digital grossness isn't as effective as tangible grossness. Like you could tell that it was prosthetics and stuff, but it it was still legitimately disgusting. Definitely. That Brundlefly digital wouldn't be as gross. I don't ever want to even think of a a, a digital Brundlefly. This is like all about a showcase of Practical effects from a Canadian director who is known for his body horror. And this is, you know, and it's a body horror of a film 
where we we genuinely kind of care about Seth Brundle. We 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 do like Jeff Goldblum in this film, even when he's like at his most horrific. You still see the tender human parts of like oh. Like, that's too bad. Like, Even near the beginning of the movie where he brings Gina Davis to the creepy murder house and then makes a creepy murder joke. Even in that moment, I was like, eh, you should probably run away, Gina Davis, but I kind of get it. How great is Gina Davis in this film? She's wonderful. Honest to God, when she says, no, be afraid, be very afraid, that is a that is a very, very specific horror line that, like, people know. I mean, it's a tagline for the film. It's such a powerful, like, lady, get out of here because you don't know what you're messing with. But I also really bought their romantic chemistry, which then it turns out that Goldblum and Gina Davis were dating at the time in real life. And so I think that helped that they actually had real life chemistry, which apparently Cronenberg was thinking about not casting her because they were dating. And I'm glad he did because that chemistry actually really helped. I'm glad he did too. Well, I also have to say that Jeff Goldblum is a pretty attractive man in this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I first time I ever saw him was in Jurassic Park, and he's basically the comedic relief. But I could see women being like, oh, Jeff Goldblum, eh? He got all, like, superhero jacked for that movie, and I was kind of here for it. When he walks out of that teleporter and he's naked, I'm like, holy crap, man. That's like... Ant-Man level of physique coming out of this teleporter. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of had that moment of like Agent Carter wanting to like tap the pecs. Yes, tap that peck. <laughs> now, did you watch this with uh, with Peria? I did. I did watch it with my girlfriend um, and she did tap out pretty quickly and she also did not imagine. enjoy it at all. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, I always ask Becky, do you want to join me? And my wife usually says... What's that one about? (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is the one where the man becomes a giant fly and nope, I'm out. I'm good. All right. Bye. (laughs) I found that uh, that Perry is always willing to give something a shot, but then she's also very willing to bail when she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And what was what was the bail? I think this has to be a part of the podcast now. What is what was the bailout moment uh, for her this time? I got to pop my head out of the voice booth and ask her. Hold on a second. What are you saying? What was the bailout moment for the fly for you? Where were you were like, nah, I'm out. The more gross you got. And why didn't you enjoy it? Because it's gross. <laughs> she also said that she thought the movie was pointless and disgusting and wasn't an allegory for anything. Well, I think I, I, I would argue that it is an allegory for toxic uh, masculinity and and. And I would uh, I would argue that, uh, you know, they had some really great positive things to say about women and how uh, how a woman can be affected by her partner and how she wants to take control of her body. I think there's some positive things in this film. I think so, too. I think I think she had punched out at about that same point that those points were being made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you got to stick through it to get those points for sure. A hundred percent. hundred percent. But I also did see that there's been sort of an allegory attached to it that Cronenberg has said he never intended, but he can kind of appreciate, which was about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. I thought that was kind of an interesting lens to look at this plot through 
uh, in retrospect. Certainly. But Cronenberg was saying that it was more about the aging process and death for him. I mean, that's like asking, hey, David Lynch, what's the allegory for this movie? And then he tells you the allegory and you're like, well, I didn't understand the movie and I don't understand the allegory either. So thanks for coming. And I feel a, a little bit that way about Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, that's fair. I feel like uh, I... So I'm going to watch my very first David Lynch film. You've never seen a David Lynch film? I know. I know. I know that's like your bread and butter. What are you watching? I'm going to watch the Nicolas Cage Wild at Heart. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I think that's what it's called. I have to watch it for uh, for another podcast. But Wild at Heart is what I... Yeah. And it's from 1990 and it stars Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. Willem Dafoe is in it apparently. I don't know if I'm going to like it. I've always avoided Lynch for being a guy that I just knew that I didn't think I'd ever like. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Plug the other podcast that you're going to be talking about it on. I will be talking about that on More Than Movies with uh, where I where I also host a podcast about movies. Oh my God, I just saw a review for The Fly on Letterboxd. This is great. Peter Parker had it easy. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on We Saw a Thing. We thoroughly got grossed out this time <laughs> by the great practical effects. How about we get grossed out by Kevin Bacon doing some dancing? Are we going to footloose? Let's footloose. Everybody footloose. I am so nervous about this remake. It was the Kevin Bacon one, the original? Yeah, the original's footloose with Kevin Bacon. Okay, okay, okay. And then the remake is with, I think, Julianne Huff? Intra- well... We all know she's a wonderful actress. <laughs> she's a great dancer. I'm also really interested to see how they outlaw dancing in the, in the mid-2000s, because that just seems insane. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcott's Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our show notes for links to our social media and credits. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts.